Welcome to our history podcast, where the only people who listen to it are students and Mr. Wardrow who are forced to. We're going to learn about the Gilded Age today, more specifically supply and demand, labor and agriculture organizations, and progressive reforms in their effectiveness in preventing corrupt business practice. As always, first come, first serve, supply and demand. It's basically that thing that does the thing with the economy, right? Well, I guess you're right, James. Yes! But you're missing a huge part of it. Rats. Don't worry, I happen to know a lot about supply and demand. The concept of supply and demand is a critical building block of the economy. For example, we all love our phones, right? Well, let's say there are so many phones in the world that you could just pick one right off of the street. Would you able to be able to sell that phone for a normal price? No. Why would someone pay so much money for a phone when they could just find one on the ground, just like you did? Unless in that scenario, the supply is way higher than the demand, making the price cheap. Now, same scenario, but instead everybody wants a phone, but there are only 100 phones in total. You could charge thousands of phones and people would still buy it. Now, that is because the demand outweighs the supply by massive amounts, effectively raising the price. Wait, wait, wait. So if I'm a businessman, I want to make less of my product so I can charge more? Well, not necessarily. You need to be careful because the demand determines how much people will pay. If your product isn't in much demand, you can't charge high prices for it. <clears throat> that makes sense. Thank you. Now let me continue. One example of using supply and demand to your benefit is the Ford Car Company. In the early 1900s, the Ford Car Company was paying their workers $5 a day, which was a lot of money back then, and there weren't strikes in the workplace as a result. His idea was that if he paid them well, the workers could buy the cars that they were making. Ford's annual output rose from 34,000 cars to 730,000 cars between the years of 1910 and 1916. The price of the Model T dropped from $700 to $316. Technology and automation used in the manufacturing of products allowed companies to produce more items for less money and sell them at a lower price. The increased supply at a lower price allowed more people to purchase the items, which resulted in increased demand. More factory jobs provided workers with more money to buy more products, which also increased demand. Wow, that sounds very complicated. Well, it is really complicated, but it works very well. Okay, I think I'm all supply and demand it out. Can we move on? Funny you should mention that. I just got here to help you explain how events led to the creation of labor and agricultural organizations that protect the rights of workers. Mouthful much? Yeah, let's break it down a bit with a couple of guided questions. What were the working conditions that caused labor organizations to form? And what were some specific events that helped increase support for labor movements? I don't know. I was kind of hoping you would tell me. I will if you let me. Okay, so the people worked 10-hour shifts six days a week for little amounts of money, and children as young as eight years old worked hours that kept them from going to school. Workers did not have medical insurance, so they were fired if injured from the job. If you don't realize, these working conditions are atrocious. Yeah, I noticed. Can you give me any specific happenings of this? Actually, I can. First, the Triangle Shirtwaist Company fire of 1911 led to the deaths of 146 women. The workers from the Triangle Shirtwaist Company worked from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. with only a half an hour for lunch. They were paid $6 a week, but were only paid $4 when it was a slow season. Yikes, that's miserable. Only $6 a week? All I can say is wow. I'm not done yet, buddy. There's also the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, when 
in reaction to rail line slashing workers' wages during 1873. When workers struck from Baltimore to St. Louis, shutting down railroad traffic across the country. Then six weeks after the strike had began, it finally ended and was known as the Great Upheaval. It convinced laborers of, of the need for institutionalized unions, persuaded business of the need, and for even greater political influence than government aid. Wow, those are just some terrible conditions. Is that how progressive reforms came to be? Wow, those are some terrible conditions. Is that how progressive reforms came to be? James, you're on a roll today. Thanks, I try. I just have a few questions for you. How did the progressive reforms prevent unfair business practices and political corruption? And what progressive reforms were implemented in stopping unfair business practices, fighting political corruption, and or promoting social justice slash equal rights? Come on, James, give me a challenge. Social reforms during the Gilded Age included the 19th Amendment that gave women the right to vote and the 18th Amendment, which granted the prohibition of alcoholic beverages. Then for government reforms, the start of the federal income tax, the 16th Amendment, and the direct election of senators, the 17th Amendment. The 16th Amendment was created to raise money by taxing the more wealthy people to help the people in need was also created to address the election reforms to stop corruption and fraud. The 17th Amendment was created to give people more direct input in selection of the senators. Lastly, for business reforms, we have the Sherman Antitrust Act. The Sherman Antitrust Act was improved business competition, which resulted in better prices for products and better working conditions. Wow. And that's all my brain could take. So we will see you next time on History Podcast, the only podcast people are forced to listen to.